Matthew Trenhale, welcome back to the Business of Betting podcast. Glad to be back, Jake. Congratulations on your uh, million plus uh, listens. Thank you. Thank you. It's uh, it's a strange thing to think about and it's hard to track and follow, but you know what I can follow, it seems like a few people have listened, so that's pretty cool. And uh, I think the, you know, recently going back and chatting with people a second time, I realized we hadn't spoken in a long time. So it's going to be cool to, to cover a few things. Just tell us, you've kind of been very much on the grid for a while with your own podcast and, and certainly plenty of musings, all things betting. What's been the, the impetus to change that and, and how has it gone for you? Well, what happened is I, I bought quite a lot of shares in after timing and hindsight smugness. Um, so when Corona came along, I just pretty much made more money than I knew what to do with after that. Uh, as that seems to be the trend of the analysis. It's very close to bookmaking in, in many ways. So, yeah, no, so I did a fair few podcasts, I want to say 16 or so, and I was on Twitter and quite active on Twitter. But I increasingly found that Twitter, for me, was it's a bit like betting in that the real fun of betting is being right, and money is just the way of keeping score on it, really. So... You want to see how often you're right and to what degree you're right. And, you know, money embedding pretty much gives you a good track record of that. But with Twitter, I treat it almost exactly like that. Um, I like to be right. And the thing about Twitter is that there, no one pays you. So you can say something, you know, it's right, or you're pretty sure it's right, or you've got quite a good, you know, backup or experience, or you've spoken to the people relevant. So you're pretty happy with right, and people will go, yeah, maybe. And you're like, fuck, no, no, I need you to say, I need you to say, yes, Matthew, you're completely right. Now that I see it from your point of view, and you know, the moment, the moment you need that from social media, the moment you know that you're incapable of using social media in a healthy way, which is pretty much me. So I would get caught on Twitter or after a podcast, people leave comments or whatever, and you know, if you're just I don't know, narcissistic or just all you want to hear is people tell you, oh, wow, I never realized that. That's that's really cool. You know, yeah, you're, you're, you're bang right. You're so smart. Oh, gosh, you know so much. Then, yeah, you know, it's, it's not a healthy way to sort of interact with it, I guess. So you don't miss recreating the discussions around the uh, the pinnacle model in the U.S. these days? <laughs> no, no. Well, I, yeah, I, I, I don't miss that. And I, I, I've always missed, and it continues to be whenever I run to people talking about betting and people talking about models of bookmaking and how to do it, I, I always miss the next level of analysis. So the discussion on that often revolves around, you know, high volume versus low volume, high margin versus low margin, closing accounts versus not closing accounts, um, profiling to move your odds, profiling to close accounts, all these sort of elements. But no one does the rather mundane thing of actually going through the process, um, talking about it. So for me, it's like, okay, so for starters, if you want to talk about all bookmakers should do X, you've got to put yourself in the bookmaker's shoes. 
and go through the process. So the one thing that I always find interesting is like, yeah, you know, bookmakers should be, let's take any country sport, college football, let's say. Um, and they're like, yeah, so I want to be able to bet well in advance of kickoff and I want to bet in at least, you know, thousand, two thousand, five thousand dollars, whatever, however chancy the peer person talking about the subject is. And um, on the side, and, you know, the bookmaker should then be able to use that information to shape their book and, uh, and make loads of money. So, you know, I make money, they make money, I make them more money, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, well, let's, you know, let's walk, walk through that. So you come on um, well in advance kickoff. So all the recreational punters got no, haven't even thought about placing their bets. They're not even going to think about doing it for another 12 hours, whatever. And you place your bet, and the bookmaker who's decided to take everyone on takes that bet. And it's like, right, okay, what do you do? Right, okay, well, I've taken my max liability on this, and i got to move it. And so the question is, well, how much do I move it? And that is a difficult question in and of itself. Do I move it past the key number? I move it just a little bit. You know, do I look at the rest of the market? Do I trade independently of the market? You know, and the truth of the matter is, is that if you move that and you don't take another bet from anyone up until the recreational money comes in, and when the first recreational bet you strike is at the same price as the rest of the market, all you've done is lost money because you would have got there with the rest of the market without taking that bad EV bet. That EV bet has not shaped your market. You've gone 10 hours with the right price, but didn't take any bets. Um, and so then we come back to, well, how can you generate positive EV off that negative EV initial bet? And it's like, okay, so I take that bet off whoever the smart guy is. And then I maybe hope to get um, maybe some arbitrage trading. And it's like, okay, or maybe it'll be someone else who's smart because I've got a reputation. I lay smart customers. So the second person comes in, now if they're smart, by definition, they think the price is wrong. So if you think they truly are smart and you have given them to be smart, then they've had another negative EV bet for you, off you, and on the process goes. Whereas if it's arbitrage, someone just playing a difference between you and the rest of the bookmaking world, well, you can try and encourage that arbitrage. I've often said that I thought Pinnacle basically was doing a reduced juice kind of model in order to drive as much arbitrage versus recreational bookmakers because their price was sharper and they would generate that buyback and often they'd be able to generate that buyback net overall at a better rate than the negative EV bets they laid to smart people. Um, but this whole process of like, what, how would you, you know, I, I, all these professional gamblers, well, how would you move your odds? When you move your sides, how much do you move your totals? Do you move your totals? You know, it's not, even if we use something simple, like, I don't know, if you did money line, you can do this in a different way. So money line implied probability adds up to 100% when you remove the juice. And you could use literally like, I don't know, you call it binary search. So you start at 50-50. Someone goes, you know, what team A, 50%, right? So we now know it's between 50 and 100%. So we go 75 and then someone now goes to the other team, right? So it's between 50 and 75. So, you know, and you narrow it down. And the thing about this binary search method is it does not actually take many bets for you to get to the right price. 
But of course, every single bet you took prior to that right price was negative EV to a degree. And the truth is, is that there is some drift past true price in this discovery method, but the drift past is never as big as probably what you've given up in negative EV at that point. So at what point do I get to exploit my better than the rest of the market quality price? Because I don't get to exploit it by laying recreationals at better quality odds because they come at the end of the market anyway. They already come when the other 200 bookmakers or bookmakers or third, depending on how big your geographical pool is, have all got to their own price discovery point and you all lay your bets to the recs at roughly the same time, roughly the time when you need to have had massive marketing spend to try and get those people to bet with you as opposed to the other guy. So it's literally wastage, as far as I'm concerned, for many people. How much brand value can I attach to being the guy who's happy to lose some money to the sharp guys and probably not get much out of it? It's a lost leader in my mind. So how much has Pinnacle gained over the years by people betting with them, even recreationals, because they have the reputation of winner's welcome? Winner's welcome. They don't seem to use it quite as much now, but winner's welcome very much used to be their standardized sort of banner, you know, advertising uh, riff kind of thing. Um you know, if you're circus sports now, you know, making a big noise over in the, you know, certainly on the American Twitter scene, you know, how much value can you attribute to being the guys who doesn't turn winners away? That is completely up to speculation. And what's the value in the UK or what's the value of that in Australia? It's like in Australia, I would suggest it, it's I suppose it depends more on your cultural attitude towards betting. So if you're like Central European country where the average bet size is very small um, and, you know, you just like to bet in two euros, bang, bang, bang throughout a live game, then having the reputation of being the guy who lays all these bets, what's that worth to your brand? Who knows? Australia. Now, Australia, you know, giving everyone a fair shake. I don't know if that's the Australian phrase, but, you know, there's this kind of attitude towards everyone should get a, you know, a fair look. And also there's a, I don't know if I'm being here but you know the it's quite a macho attitude it feels at times in australian bookmaking you know so you should take a, a decent size bet quote decent size bet um so i can see how being a brand so top sport i think is the guys who sort of make a point of saying how you know they'll, they'll take on some of the sharper punters i can see how that might actually have brand value now the states is a different market i've always i've never said that uh, i suppose the u.s is not different but I do think in many ways a lot of the betting, you know, the way of betting is done around the world will become de facto the rule in America as well, simply because it was been refined and it is the best way of doing some things. But the one thing is definitely under question is how much that integrity of fairness valuation, I say fairness, again, that's I would debate about, you know, where fairness lies. But, you know, there is this debate as to how much brand value can you extract by being the guy who lays big bets, et cetera. What about other jurisdictions? We get caught up on the US, but have you encountered the same question or how would you think about it in another place or another country? Okay, so you want to run the, you know, pinnacle model in Sweden. You know, okay, well, they're going to put deposit restrictions on, you know, bonus restrictions, you know. We're already going into a world where the protection of problem gamblers is almost going to dictate your betting model ahead of any other decision you make. Um, you know, cost of data, 
you know, a lot of these people who can afford to take bigger bets uh, from, you know, people who can afford to take on potentially the, the high volume, uh, low margin models are, are people who um, maybe don't have to worry about paying quite the same bills as other people. This That's been well discussed. Right. And everyone just assumes like, well, you just keep just keep turning over the volume, just, you know, just need more volume. And then if it's small margins, like what happens is as you crank up the volume, you know, the margin doesn't get, the margin just shrinks and shrinks as you crank up the volume. And it's because, do you know where there's infinite volume? There's infinite volume from people who are really fucking good at betting and still make money. They can continue to turn more and more money. And the people who don't make money, well, they don't deposit anymore because they lose it all and so on. So it's like, you know, it's like if I went on Betfair and I said, right, I'm going to lay every horse at a thousand in this next race, I can get the volume. You know, it's like getting getting the turnover if you're doing things that actively put you at a disadvantage or negative EV is is really easy to do. It's like, you know, giving out free bets it's like, yeah, we've got four thousand new signups over you know the past day. And it's like, yeah, but did we do it with anything that has any longevity or forward thinking positive EV for the business? You know, right. So I, I never really found anyone who was wanting to engage in that. And also there were, you know, there were times when I had information, I suppose, that in the back of my mind, I was like, I know, I know you're wrong there. But, you know, I tried to keep some integrity and, you know, didn't want to say on Twitter, actually, I know so-and-so works there and you're talking shit because they don't do that or something. Because, you know, then you really look like a smug prick and it's like, yeah, again, no one gets much value out of that. Right. Well, maybe maybe we can uh, we can get you on Joe Rogan sometime soon. You can do a three hour <laughs> pod out in California and, and get into all this. But I wanted to, as you were describing just before, I wanted to ask about the theory, or the odds theory, the price theory, or the price discovery theory. Has that been has that evolved much? Has that been shaped throughout the decades? And last time we spoke, we spoke a lot about you know your time in spread betting and I think IG Index it was called back then. Um, you know, those, those trading rooms or offices were probably deep in discussion, you know, decades ago now about all these types of things, I'm sure has obviously the, the, the idea and the, the function of placing a bed and laying a bed hasn't changed very much from, you know, hundreds of years ago back at the horse track or anything like that. But has the theory of these things been, been, have you delved pretty deep in, in certain conversation and, and seen it change or is it? still pretty uh pretty binary in a lot of the discussions and it's still pretty shallow once you get into the real details um i certainly think that always the philosophy was that price discovery should be done uh, as cheaply as possible and that may sound like a really obvious thing to say but we um certainly when i look back at old spread betting is you know people use this phrase marker and I love it when, you know, massive professional gamblers say, why don't they just use me as a marker? And it's like, yeah, you, you know, m markers probably in the old days and in my concept of markers, they genuinely did pay for themselves. And when I say that, it's like, let's say IG would open up, let's say you could have a hundred pound a point on a spread market and they called up in the morning first thing. So we used to have a phone line that we'd turn on at 9 a.m., They'd call up and they'd say like, oh, can I sell 10 pounds a point? And, you know, people used to give all this fucking bullshit, like gentleman bookmakers, always so nice. Like, it's not nice. Guy just wants to make money, but it just has a risk appetite that happens to suit your price discovery. Um, and that's great. You know, so this guy would be like, you'd look at him. 
and he like bets in ten pounds a point, and he's made like two hundred grand over the last three years. We're like fucking hell, that was great, great education. In that you know, if you're if you're good, you can make a living off reasonably small stakes. But you know, people were trading things where they knew the parameters, they knew the boundaries. So like right now, we trade sports where we could be, you know, the lines that get put up could be two or three standard deviations fucking wrong by the time we get to closing line. But back then, you know, let, let's say it was supremacy goals in a soccer match. It'd be like, you know, okay, so we're trading it at, you know, 0.4 to 0.6 or whatever. Sells 10 pounds, which oh, that really would be a tiny bit. You know, sells 10 pounds at 0.4. You know, you knew that it's like 0.3, maybe 0.2 at best. You know, you kind of knew the, the limits because it was a Premier League game or whatever it was. And, you know, we were only trading in, in good stuff. And, yeah, those people existed. They seemed happy to bet. And I think the closest I get to now for these kind of people are kind of like the home spread cheaters. You know, these guys who they got some shots on target dates, whatever it may be. And they're probably going to get a better price than your opening price, but probably a worse price than your closing price. And some of these guys, they're just sort of learning. And again, but even then, those guys now seem to, you know, the get rich quick generation, you know, even they now are like banging limits on the openers across as many bookmakers as they can. But, you know, they were sort of the kind of people, the hobbyists, I used to call them, you know, the people who'd like would give you a good steer as to where maybe you'd missed something on the stats or something like that. And like how you do prices, like, as I say, the when you've got sort of a multivariate sport, something which has pace, so like, you know, basketball is a, you know, there's many different ways to play basketball. Um, many different like geographical variations around the world and styles of play, pace of play. And so you've got totals and spreads and, you know, they're connected to each other. You know, there's implication, you know, when someone, you know, backs the the home favorite or the, uh, you know, the road dog or whatever it may be, you know, they're not only making uh, an opinion about how good one team is, but possibly the way the, mat the, the match is going to be played. Price I don't think anyone's really come up with really great ways of doing that. You know, there's you can take a bet and then you can simulate your liabilities off that bet, which off only one bet's not really an interesting exercise, but you can simulate, you know, what should I move my odds to to minimize the liability. And when you've only taken one bet on one side, invariably it's just like, well, I just move the side. But as these things evolve, you know, if you want it to be really smart, you know, there's <clears throat> There's a good reason that Pinnacle, you know, like for years, you know, soccer correct scores. Soccer correct scores is one of the greatest fucking margin bets you can lay in, you know, in, in bookmaking. And you're thinking to yourself, right, because, you know, they've this nice situation with the Asian handicap and the totals, and they just got to move things in one of two directions. And then suddenly someone bang comes in and says, I want $500 on the one nil with one team. And you've laid something up you know, six to one or, you know, plus 700, whatever it may be. And you're like, right, what do I do now? Um, well, it's one nil. So I move the unders, but he's back that team. So he's back that team, but that's the favorite. So that makes the favorite more likely to, win. you know, you get into the situation where I don't think there are necessarily without knowing exactly what's in the punter's mind, who placed the bet. It's hard to do price discovery. And we now have, huge arrays of derivatives it's like it's like these pricing models in 2008 which completely fell apart 
because there were so many bits they didn't really understand how they interacted with each other and it's like if someone backed brady yards how does that affect first quarter totals you know it's like you you've got to you've got to kind of get inference um and there's you know there are people out here very smart smarter than me saying oh well statistically you can infer this and do that and yeah absolutely you can but it it just requires a, a huge amount of effort um compared to just having roughly good prices that you know non-professional betters you know don't beat you on anyway um so price discovery in terms of like it it feels like it's become more expensive unless you force it down so like pinnacle reduce their limits on their openers load of things um so they reduce the cost there you know to me that's not a not a stupid thing to do and you're having to infer price discovery across a wide range of you know derivative markets and player props now and and yeah it's just just generally got harder i mean you're doing it on sports where there's much wider uh much lower confidence in the sports and yet there is you know the constant i i i still staggered by the obsession with being able to lay big bets as sort of a thing but you know the, the american market always confuses me because what is it like the median u.s salary is i don't know fifty thousand dollars a year or whatever take out car payments house payments children's food whatever you know taxes you know what does that leave you as disposable let's call it entertainment income at the end of the month um and you know how much you know people are saying like i can't even bet a thousand dollars on this like jesus christ (laughs) you know and it's like unless you've saved several years to get a big bankroll i just don't see why this should matter to you and like even the american market has much higher average stakes compared to the rest of the world but you know the funny thing is so much the american market is a product of its evolution so if you went on holiday to vegas right you might have a five dollar parlay but if you're gonna have a single and even the people don't realize even the odds in america make you want to bet 100 bucks because the fucking odds mm. tell you to bet 110 <laughs> bucks to win 100 it, everything about it says have this bigger stake on and you're on holiday and you're in sin city so have a fucking so everything has spiraled out of this one really sort of small inbred petri dish of betting to the rest of the american market but yeah so this average bet site you know people want the price discovery becomes harder because people want to open up with bigger than they should limits and the people are sometimes reluctant to scale the limits i, I think that's changing thank god you know the, i think there was a time where people were like well you know going to take $500 on this does it matter if I take $500 on this three days before or three hours it's like yes it's like, oh, okay can you talk a little bit about the diversification aspect as maybe a bookmaker would think about it or have you had those discussions what type of, of thoughts are going into that given all the current circumstances we've never had a more diversified portfolio of sports and, and coronavirus is definitely showing us that with the huge bookmaker offerings that are coming up now with all sorts of crazy things but they're individually poorly diversified. So you take one bet on one CSGO match. Um, whereas, you know, once upon a time, you may have only had, like, say, the Premiership football, um, like Bundesliga and, like, NFL, you know, a handful of things. And you'd be sort of, you know, well, go back far enough, you wouldn't even be diversified there. There'd be one game that was a standout game and you'd be heavily loaded on one side. But, you know, now you sort of get this illusion of diversification, but the reality is, is that on each individual game, you can have very even more lopsided positions than we've ever had before. 
and quite often they're just one bed. Um, so, and that that can sort of create an illusion of safety. So, you know, you look at it and you'd be like, oh, great, you know, we took, um, you know, 100 bets on this, you know, NBA 2K <laughs> friendly where the pros play or whatever. And you're like, and like, oh, yeah, they seem to be spread across, um, seem to be uh, spread across the games. So like, oh, oh, hang on. We've only taken like five bets per game. Exactly five bets per game? Right. Oh, and it's the same accounts that have placed one bet on every game. And like suddenly it dawns on you like, oh, I'm, I'm more fragile than I, than I thought. Because once upon a time you just were like, hey, we lost on the horse racing. We're going to win on the soccer tonight. And it's kind of like, you know, there was they genuinely did feel like you couldn't post a losing day in bookmaking. Um, and while, you know, still sufficiently diversified, there, there can be like pockets of fragility within your offering. So tell me about the Corona world. Uh, the mainstream, you know, thought on this is that you shouldn't be betting on things you don't know. And certainly the aspiring, you know, sports bettors out there should be, you know, saving their bankroll for, for a time in the future, let's say. Um, and, and that all seems to make some sense. But from your perspective, what has this world brought to us? And what's the, the bookmaking perspective, the betting perspective? What type of viewpoint do you have on on what this is all brought about well you know there was a huge desperate attempt to get new content in we'd lost you know 90 percent of the content for bookmaking site and so suddenly you've got this huge spray out of coverage and it's not really covered there's not much derivatives going on there's a shitload of matches no one really knows quality levels. Like no one can tell you whether that small Brazilian e-soccer league is better or worse quality than it is. So in this huge period of uncertainty, um, this is probably one of the few times where, yeah, I get it. Like if you're a guy who's used to using massive data sets, you know, you've learned your art, you know, you're really good, you know, you build a simulation for the NFL, the rest of it. Yeah, okay. If you want to say, guys, do not bet at this time, fine. If you're someone who basically has good contrarian instincts, who can just watch a little bit of sport and into it something that's wrong about the odds, it is literally a golden age. I would say to the imaginative, you know, creative, you know, savvy gambler, there's never been a better opportunity than right now. You've got infinite number of sports. Every time you place a bet, sport, bet, you know, match after match, you look more and more like an addict. No one's turning away turnover. Limits are up on stuff that's got very low confidence levels. You know, crypto bookmakers are cranking this stuff out. You know, God, you don't even have to put your bloody email address in. Just, you know, everyone is going absolutely, you know, crazy to survive this. And like, if you're telling me that, you know, the people who are odds compiling this stuff, the scant few, who everyone obviously takes an aggregate of their prices up. You know, if you're telling me the one or two guys, you know, Bet365's eSoccer guy is like the authority on eSoccer on the planet, probably not. It's just probably not correct. So, you know, and people like, I, I noticed the one sort of narrative that people come up with is people like sort of say, like, oh yeah, I found out it was pre-recorded or like, people are like, you know, right now when a bookmaker is hurting, the last thing they fucking want is some prick, you know, having them over on this kind of shit. Like, so I wouldn't personally recommend that you know for betting longevity or, or whatever especially when it's far easier just to watch you know nicaraguan soccer or Belarus. you know nicaraguan soccer like fuck it's really hot in nicaragua isn't it yeah 
I'd get tired. Yeah, and these guys aren't like top pros. Like, so I mean, yeah, well, what are the total goals? Do you think the total goals are right? You know, like a good example is this like lower division Brazilian soccer. It's really fucking hot. And the goals do not, they've got a different goal distribution in really hot countries where it's really, you know, people play the game at different pace play. So someone who's already like just good at watching a sport can like watch Nicaraguan or maybe the Belarusians got a particular style or maybe they look and it's like, you know what? These referees don't get cards out for anything. So, all right. So how does that, so if the referee can't be influenced, you know, what does that mean for home advantage? You know, it's like, it, it's, by far and away the most enjoyable betting intellectual game right now from my perspective from my from what i've observed and monitoring liabilities of different bookmakers there's ever there's ever been you know it's like i think the people who saying you know don't bet now are, are possibly being a bit unimaginative interesting because we always we always talk about the you know the, the soft spots of the books we talk about the derivatives we talk about trying to look at areas they may not be focusing on. And it seems like in this world, everything in that bucket has pretty much been propelled to the prime time and limits have changed. You know, expertise hasn't necessarily changed with it. And there may be an opportunity like you're describing. Yeah, I mean, derivative, people are rightly nervous of derivatives. Um, Yeah, you know, just the idea that, you know, that... I, I get reports and I, I get to see uh, matches which have moved. The odds have moved between opening and closing. Uh, a million reports I received, but one, you know, a number of odds that have moved over a certain threshold um, between opening and closing. And you've got to remember that these matches have odds up for less time than a normal fixture would do, and yet the number of matches appearing on this report is just through the fucking roof. So you know, there's just extreme volatility and when the volatility is that big you don't even have to be maxing out the limit uh you know if you find a nice little angle on nba 2k or on you know whatever it may be something with a high turnover of fixtures you know the e-leagues or you know esports are on the you know the more conventional esports um you know you, you only need to be betting in don't get me wrong, like if you're a big syndicate and you've got like a large amount of bills, like fine, furlough your developers and your trades, well, you know, I, I guess there's like, but if you're, if you're someone who's happy to take home the equivalent of a reasonable salary a year from your betting, um, you, you absolutely now should be, in my mind, at least looking at those kind of things rather than just, you know, what's the one I hear a lot of people just like, I'm going to overhaul my models or I'm going to learn Python. It's like, yeah, we all fucking say we're going to learn things in coronavirus. And <laughs> yeah, you know. we just drink, we just drink more and, and watch more uh, Netflix probably. But do you have a sense of what, let's just say this calendar year 2020 will have on the, the overall market moving forward from a bird's eye view? Do you think that it'll accelerate the contraction? It'll have an impact on the, the bookmaking side. It'll change the dynamics moving forward. Um, for me, it's hard to say what's going to have a bigger impact, the the virus or the increased attitude towards problem gambling. Different for different areas. I suppose, like, the U.S. is still young. You know, if we get NFL back, I think it probably doesn't change dramatically. It's kind of like back to the level of evolution that they were. 
but for some other nations you know lockdown has prompted this look at you know people are worried about people being at home and betting too much especially when they don't have the money because they've been furloughed or, or whatever so i think increasingly you're like looking at all these so things you observe bookmakers shutting down affiliate programs um i think typico was the most recent big german bookmakers most recent one shut down their affiliate programs so affiliate programs are shutting down and Scandinavian governments in particular, you know, utopia dictates that we don't have too many problem gamblers. So they're, you know, they're putting in laws about deposit limits and maximum bet size. But, you know, you know, it's like that could change. That could drive certain geographies into a sort of state where the business model more than ever becomes about having millions of customers who bet two euros a time or, or two pounds or two dollars. And those businesses are quite unsustainable a lot of the time. Or they're, they're sustainable, but it's more practical to merge into a bigger entity. And so, yeah, you know, the I can see... The funny thing is that like a lot of people said, like, oh, you know, I, one of the discussions I have at the moment is people are like, oh, we're going we're gonna to keep offering all this extra coverage more fixtures than we did before coronavirus and it's like shit okay so it's going to be hard bearing in mind you know it you know staffing levels are you know pinched you know it's going to be hard to be offering the same kind of stuff and if anything you might get a slight contraction so you might lose all the stuff sorry for those people who became big fans of all this other stuff you might get a contraction in that and people may also need to save money by reducing the packages of data they buy or the extra stuff um so you may get sort of a contraction in bookmaker offerings and sort of more of a focus on the sports although some you know some of the stuff may survive i mean i'm not being funny i don't think anyone is complaining about the margins on some of this stuff like table tennis is a good earner really is um so you know i can definitely see some stuff check that the the global landscape of offerings you know changing a little bit but again will be keen to keep more of the live stuff and in particular if it falls in a slot where there's nothing else to bet on um but in terms of industry you know struggling financially some bookmakers you know because yes in, everyone's integrating virtual sports people are taking on all this new coverage and so on but you can't get around the fact that the people who bet have less money to bet with and i know everyone loves to say like oh betting's the last thing to suffer and it's like well you know the the two dollar parlay guy yeah he probably he might but the funny thing is a two dollar parlay guy let's make gross assumptions about the social demographic here the two dollar parlay guy might be more at risk of his job potentially so if he's got no job he's probably not having the two dollar parlay but if he's like slightly reduced he might keep doing but the guys who are like you know white collar you know and a year salary guys those guys who maybe bet a hundred dollars a hundred pounds a game or whatever they're definitely being impacted and they're the ones that actually pay for their cost of acquisition of accounts. So let's say in different jurisdictions, you know, cost of acquiring a new account can be hundred to three hundred dollars, whatever it may be. Um, I think, you know, as much as $500, uh, you need someone to deposit for starters, you know, at least that amount and hope that they lose it all. Um, so yeah, so the, the nub, the percentage of your, open accounts at any given time who are actually making you money as a bookmaker um, unless you have some huge scalability uh, means that yeah you know the, there's going to be 
you're going to get pinched pretty hard now. And so, yeah, so consolidation would seem to be fairly inevitable, I guess. Um, but, yeah, it's hard for me to – I mean, they signed off – you probably follow the legal – the Flutter – Flutter Stars merges all done, dusted. Yep. Is that right? Yep, finalized. Yeah, that's all, that's all done, dusted. I mean that that does seem to be um, ties up. It's it's funny, you know, that you can sort of if you're a, a sports uh, betting uh, service, yeah, the number of invoices you send out is definitely uh, definitely dwindling for the, for the same amount of websites, if you like. Um, if it, I think that people have various estimates based on when full prop, inverted commas, proper sport comes back. Um, but Bundesliga, it would be fascinating to watch. I mean, I'll be glued to bet for when Bundesliga, mm-hmm. May 16th, I think it is. Yeah. Um, that's going to be just, just absolutely fascinating because um, you can almost be certain that, you know, all the big players will be out and they'll all be speculating on, you know, if home advantage is deemed to be predominantly referee driven and if it referee response is predominantly driven by crowds you know right down to crowd proximity and there are no crowds um you know people will have been making you know thumb in the air guesses at what home advantage has been impacted i'd be interested to see the odds moves just kind of geek i am i guess and turnover and all that other stuff you know it's going to be really interesting i remember when um when uh, I want to say one stage of the lockdown, there was like there was only UK greyhounds really in the UK left. And I remember watching the first bags race. Like this was these are things that normally have like I don't know they can range from like ten to thirty thousand turnover. Just seeing like you know the the turn the turnover take off as everyone's looking to like turn their bots onto something or or turn away to something. And then yeah, the the Bundesliga is going to be just like this in in massive scale absolutely so one general topic i wanted to ask you about which i don't think necessarily gets a lot of uh coverage or deeper discussion is just the zero-sum nature of the betting markets and you know some people talk about the markets that it's uh better versus bookmaker or punter versus bookmaker others you know from the professional angle say well you know if you're making money out of this you're just taking money out of the pockets of the the recreational gamblers and the the bookmakers are clipping the ticket on the way through. And it's funny that it it doesn't necessarily always land on a consensus. I think the obvious element of the zero sum nature of of betting markets is, is clear. And, but for whatever reason, you know, there's always discussions and overlap with positive sum markets and, and differentiation, but also trying to make analogies that don't always work. How does it, how do you think about the zero sum nature? Does it, does it have an enormous impact on, on everything you think about? Does it lead you to those decisions and, and theories and, and choices that uh, seem to be sensible given that? Or is it is there a better way to think about it? Do you know what? Uh, zero sum in terms of, um, you know, the, the life cycle of money within the system. People don't talk about sort of the total utility of the system. But it's one of my concerns. I'm not, I'm not sure whether this was sort of the area you're looking, but for me, one of the concerns is calculating the amount of misery caused by those people who aren't able to manage their gambling appropriately. The amount of people who derive utilitarian factor, regardless of whether they win or lose from having a bet. Um, you know, because I'm pretty sure the professionals, if as long as they're winning, you know, they're getting their utility out of it. 
Um, and, you know, the bookmakers employ people. So, you know, their salary is being paid, you know, so there is some societal utility being got out of that. Um, but in terms of bookmaking as a whole, I, I definitely find myself wondering, and as, as I say, it's a lot of the talks about problem gambling that's going on at the moment, um, you know, removing credit card deposits from bookmakers in the UK, these kind of areas, definitely gets me thinking about the sum game in terms of uh, overall benefit to the world. And I've got to, to be in this game, I've got to be convinced that there is overall net uh, positives there and, you know, the entertainment value for many outweighs, uh, you know, justifies the existence of it all. Um, I found it interesting that um, I want to say it was on Spanky's podcast where he was talking to Rufus Peabody and he sort of blinded Rufus a little bit at one point towards the end of the podcast with, you know, how do you justify basically that you add nothing to society as a professional gambler, <laughs> which, um, uh, sort of uh, got me thinking um and uh and, you know rufus is doing his league of you know treat professional gamblers like they're human beings whatever whatever it is so um you know i'm sure sure he feels like he's giving giving something back there um but in terms of the you know the money cycle of it all you know i think people want to in a weird way thinking of it zero sum of you know, when professional gamblers talk about, you know, betting with the bookmaker, you know, you're betting with uh, the Rex and then the bookmakers just sat in the middle sort of taking the the commission. Well, that's just, um, you know, I think if, uh, if it was a very cost-free exercise for the bookmaker to sit in that middle position and it would be sort of, it'd feel more clear cut. But, you know, if, basically just taking your clip is not enough to cover all your costs, then the bookmaker has to be, you know, increasingly uh, risk-taking. And if they've got to be increasingly risk-taking, you know, they're not a paramutual anymore. If they've got to be increasingly risk-taking, they've got to make sure that they're taking on the best possible risk they can, you know, striking if they're an insurer, you know, they've got to be selling the best insurance, you know, best premium on their insurance. Um, and so then they become as one with uh, the professional gambler in wanting to, and then suddenly it becomes a question of competition. You know, do you want to compete with the professional gambler? Um, if you know there's only so much pie and you, you know, it's got to be all eaten, you want to make sure you get as much as possible. Um, you know, and the funny thing is that I think people think of like, oh, so, you know, exchanges even better. And it's like, well, you know, if, if no one gets anything out of a sports bet other than the entertainment value potentially you know it's not like the share you know stocks and shares or whatever where you actually hold something um then there's going to be a drain you know a constant drain on that as people get spat out and you know taking just the commission on that you know even then bookmakers are kind of like right you know to host this poker game you know i've now got to have the fucking finest you know Cards, tables, chips, you know, snacks for the game goes up and up. Suddenly they've got to, you know, find a way to either market make to the wrecks internally. You know, some people do that. Or maybe, you know, hosting just a plain old sports betting exchange with zero interference, no premium charges, no added costs, whatever. You know, it's really, it's really hard to be 
to allow the zero sum nature to operate completely fluidly in that situation. I mean, right now I'm I'm trying to um as a way of keeping my mind active, I'm sort of trying to market make on the exchanges uh, horse racing and uh, and greyhounds. So yeah, so if case in the last few weeks any bet on you know any horse racing yes that includes swedish trot or greyhounds you know there's every chance you you've been matched off against me um and one thing that's just so depressing is this this market-based rate so everyone probably well i'd say everyone some people probably click betfair if you're in the uk territory or place like that you, you get to choose what commission you pay and how much uh, extra bonus crap you get and if you choose two percent you get zero extra bonus crap but what a lot of people don't you know forget is there's the market base rate and so in australia there's not just a higher market base rate for most uh, horse racing tracks and dog tracks but it wildly varies and like i, I speak to people who like no fucking clue that some places are 10 percent um and you think to yourself like i think again if i hit if i have to read one more time greedy betfair it's like why do you think they charge 10%, you know, on commission on that? You know, it's, it's because someone's passing on that, uh, that cost to, to you. And so it's sort of, um, you know, because they're, they're, I mean, it's fractured, isn't it? The, the Australian scene, isn't it? And there's, there's so many costs that need to be sort of passed on. Gets very complicated. I think that's one of the interesting things here in the US is you get into discussions about the peer-to-peer model, whatever variation of that it is. And it, you know, at a very high level, in theory, on a napkin, it works. It works really well on a napkin, I must say. Uh, and then you get into the dynamics of the operational aspects. And, you know, I know the Australian market relatively well, what you're describing with respect to, you know, product fees on sports and how that even varies by sport. The race fields legislation and, and different fees that come from uh, the horse racing industry, let's say. So, you know, it can be very simple and then it gets very, very complicated very quickly. Uh, and that's why it is interesting when a lot of the discussions around the variation in, in products that are offered to the punters, uh, the percentages, the ability to, to bet into those and even talking to friends in Australia who bet, you know, full time and, and want to bet on rugby league and then they change the product fees at a, at a league level, let's say, and there's not a lot that can be done. Um, and there's intense negotiations and it just takes... Uh, it takes it saps a lot of the um, the simplicity out of the system when you have a lot of different aspects that you've got to control from an operational perspective. So, anyway, I have a more general question, broad question for you, and it it revolves around a lot of the tales and stories you see uh, of people ascending through you know on the betting side to to making a fair bit of money or seemingly making a fair bit of money having a whiz bang, you know, computer model that's going to, you know, outlast Bill Benter and all this type of thing. And then there is a sudden cliff that appears often. Um, and I know you've probably seen this throughout the, the many years you've been involved. I just, just more broadly, as this is seemingly going to happen uh, or continue to happen, I should say, and a lot of it might be private, but uh, what's your perspective on that? Because I, I know there's a lot of people that, have that overconfidence and may have backtested, may have had one or two good seasons and may come across what they think is a is a decade-long boon about to happen for them and they're just trying to figure out how much money they can get down. Uh, it, it seems like once you do ascend, then things are going to get much more difficult and it is you know probably the best time to have a reality check 
rather than you know buying a yacht in a private island and and thinking about what you know your late 20s are going to look like yeah i mean i think that <clears throat> so the the thing that um i always find interesting is that when an edge is seen to be lost people always want to diagnose what aspect of the edge was lost and and sort of how they want to they need an answer so i don't know let's say also what's an interesting example so you know the first people who are using sectional times in racing or the first people who are using xg in soccer or whatever they're almost a victim of their initial success so they find it and they're like shit this is just printing money you know i do not need to worry about anything ever again and then suddenly they go through the, the bad half season bad whole season and they're like right it's fucked it you know clearly cats out the bag what, what was the well i'm pretty sure the only reason i was any good was because of the xg or whatever it was and now suddenly everyone's using it and so it's gone they're like, oh, you know, I've heard bookmakers now have access to Okta data so they get better XG, whatever it may be. I can assure you that almost no edges evaporate due to individual actions by individual protagonists. So the idea that suddenly you were beating Pinnacle and then suddenly, you know, Marco Bloom went out and bought some extra data packages and then Pinnacle rewrote their model and the edge was gone. That is far less likely than the ever-present, I, I suppose I might just call it absorption. So the market gets better, not because at any given point any one of the participants within the market knows they're getting better. It simply happens because it's like a collective thought action, subconscious action. So everyone thinks like, oh, when this kind of data crept into the market, they didn't get the data. They got to see other bookmakers move their odds and they got to see bets and bets shaped behaviors and behaviors turned into realizations that systematically you did this in these kind of scenarios wrong. And this absorption never really comes with this sort of eureka moment, I think. And people, the funny thing is, is people always assume that their model breaks in a eureka moment. And what, is more likely is that your model was just overperforming. And what's doubly, doubly awful, I suppose, almost as if you find yourself a good model that then goes on the most blazing hot streak ever, that sort of compounds it over and over. So, you know, for me, it's like, I always use a really basic rule of thumb in that, you know, if you're betting into, you know, uh, a market that's better 105%, two-way market and you're thinking to yourself right so in implied probability terms you know two and a half percent defense on either side of the market split that five percent and it's like when i predict uh probability using my model there's almost a mirrored 2.5 percent on the other side i can beat this what's the likelihood i can beat someone who feels they only need two and a half percent to defend themselves What's the likelihood that I can beat them by more than to you know, reverse the full 5%? So basically, I can strip their price naked. So it's almost as if they're like, it's like, what are the odds? You know, if we assume that the ever-present normal distributions that surround us, what, you know, what are the odds that I can surpass that other side 
dramatically. And the truth is, is that normal distribution is not based around break even. It's based around, you know, the bookmaker's own, you know, overround. Um, and, you know, it's like, what are the odds that I can beat that so dramatically? It's like whenever you hear someone saying, like, yeah, no, I beat, you know, NFL spreads by like, you know, I made 8% ROI. It's like, well, that's that's never going to, you know, you can never assume that that's about, and people are like, oh, you know, well, I assume maybe like 7 6% is more realistic. It's like, no, it's like the the overround, the VIG or the juice, whatever you want to call it, you know, what you bet into dictates, you know, pretty much, you know, what you can hope to achieve. And it's like to the extent that if my bookmaker, you know, if they've been betting, you know, some league that I like betting on to 108 one year and I started betting the following year and they were betting it to 106, I already would assume not fucking hell, I'm going to make more money this year. You know, you've got to think, well, there's got to be a slight price confidence increase here. So chances are I'm I'm going to be, you know, beating this by less. Um, and, you know, people who have great time, uh, the worst thing is if you can have an absolute stormer in a really liquid, really well-priced sport, because, you know, the reality is, is that your natural edge may be 1% or half a percent, which is fine, you know, if you can get enough down. Believe me, you completely underestimate how much you need to get down at a half 1% in order to make it worthwhile. But, you know, yeah, you know, there's something to be had there. Um but yeah, that you know, people just immediately assume the bad season, that's it. And it's like the reality is is that a lot of the people who crash crash because there was nothing there at all before. But there's also some people who crash because and could have carried on and made a meaningful one, two percent. And one of the things is the sports betting markets are semi efficient. They're not they're not fully efficient. And even some sports markets are closing, you know, <clears throat> probably not the most liquid ones, but you know, uh, uh, remain semi-efficient right to the end. And some of these biases can sometimes be, you know, a half percent, one percent. And people are like, why do these, um, you know, why do these biases persist? And you've got to think about that. <clears throat> the only way to really remove those biases completely in many ways to have sort of loads of completely random actors almost non-intentioned actors like complete random get like so it's the wisdom of the crowds but completely ignorant of what they're doing is the way to remove bias because anyone who builds a model to then market make even if that market make doesn't have a strong true price behind it maybe it just moves on the amount of bets they take or whatever um will get to a position where they on average across every situation every market that they trade over and over again they get to this position where on average they make good money and you're terrified of breaking the machine. So you're like, well, I know in races with five dogs and a really short favorite and, that, that, you know, it's like the moment you start overguessing that, you're worried you, you kill the goose that lays the golden eggs. So, <clears throat> and the reality is, is that your edge as a punter and your model may boil down to you know, these tiny percent edges and you give up because you, you think the edge is gone. It only soaks up enough of your edge sort of amorphously. It only soaks it up enough for your edge to shrink to a very small size where you give up. They don't need to send you into negative to fuck you off. 
They just need to get it down small enough that you don't think it's worth your while. And they're afraid of absorbing too much more of it because yesterday's XG, you know, next yesterday's shots on target is tomorrow's XG. So, you know, they almost have to remain constantly imperfectly agile. It's like the system to be really resilient needs to have like a little bit of redundancy, a bit of flex in it, um, as opposed to being really hard. You know, punter models, really good punter models are like often very sharp, volatile. They produce big running runs big losing runs these kind of things they're sort of they're precision implements with sort of high volatility whereas the market that's trying to you're betting into is sort of soft and mushy and it's just sort of trying to roll around and adapt and roll apart. it's basically you're building george foreman and the market's ali you know it's rope-a-dope constantly and the reality is is that you know there's every chance that um you know all it needs to do is it, all it needs to do is survive until you stop throwing punches at it. And a lot of people, if they kept on throwing punches, you know, could get their fair share of knockouts. But yeah, you see loads of people who, who give up to it. And the, the thing is, is unless you really know how good what you've got is, it's very hard not to be worried that you're going to just throw money, burn money indefinitely. And this is why a lot of people cling so firmly to closing line. I'm not saying they shouldn't, but you know, Closing line value provides this metric that you feel like it's okay to be losing money as far as I'm beating that. But at the same time, you could not be beating closing line value for a period. And then, you know, because there's other people pushing on that jelly that's sort of wobbling around, they may actually push your edge a little bit back out to you because their edge is really fucking good and it's just destroying the market. And suddenly your edge, and it's just like, was it you were talking to, was it Dean? I forget who it was who was talking about weight handicapping versus speed and how much speed. It was it the, probably the last one you did, I think. But it was talking about speed, yeah. Yeah, I think it was Dean or maybe Mark Lambon as well touched on it, but yeah. in the horse and racing world, yeah. They're, they're absolutely right. I mean, I remember in like early 2000s when the, the top speed ratings from the Racing Post and everyone was talking about speed and everyone was reading, you know, either Bear or Morden on Time and all these things. It's like, and they were crushing it and like, this is fucking going to live forever, you know? And <clears throat> all these guys who were handicapping by weight, you know, were probably like, fuck, you know, I've gone from making 8% to like less than 1%. And can I be really sure that, you know, 1% edge is even really an edge and I give up? The reality is that they probably crushed out the angle only so far. And eventually the guys, and there's probably guys out there, um, well, I, I'd say probably I know one of these cases where I know there are people who are handicapping the same way they do now that they did 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And you look at their charts and there's just ebbs and flows and the ebbs and flows, people say like, Oh, it's variance. It's like, it's probably not even variance. The ebb and flow is as the market has basically contracted and taken into their factors more or less. And it knows that vast majority of people are not going to do something for 20 years where the edge drops to like half a percent for two years and then goes back up or whatever. But I, I love that. I completely believe that, yeah, if if speeds are overdone and, you know, as I say, they're also it's a super fragile area to be in, isn't it? Because if you know that all the best syndicates are coming up with their time numbers and you know that the market is the product of 10 of the best time numbers in the whole world, you're one you as one individual, your time numbers need to only drop off in accuracy like a fucking point one of a percent. And you get shredded. You know, you have to fight really 
you know, for real fine level of accuracy. Whereas if you're like, you know, okay, well, I can't compete in accuracy where 90% of the price comes from. But, you know, if I can beat the remaining 10% by 10%, well, there's my 1%. And who knows, you know, maybe that grows. Yeah. You know, ah. Sometimes I just tell people just don't try and be a professional gambler at all. <laughs> maybe that's the uh, that's the ultimate answer for this. Hundreds of episodes of this show. Ultimately, the, we distill it all down into one sentence. Just don't be a professional gambler. <laughs> Oh, and yet I like so many of them. So. <laughs> so final question for you around the topic of, of self-assessment. It comes up all the time with, you know, assess your bets, make sure you assess your results, make sure you assess your process, uh, assess your mindset, you know, all these different things. And I read a, a Medium post you put out recently about uh, an old article you put, I think, on the, the Picio platform. And you, you went through some of the the uh, the things you wrote years ago. Take us through that process. Why you did it, and was it helpful? Did you did you gain anything from it? Well, I I got reeled in, didn't I? That's that's the problem. In that, um, I someone said to me like, oh, you know, someone pointed me like, have you seen this on Twitter? And I was like, no, I'm not on Twitter anymore. And they said, oh, look at this. Like, uh, is this you? They wrote this article and I clicked. And I think it was, you know, you can look at an account on on Twitter. And I think it was pretty sure it was Picchio who posted it. And I was like, fuck, you know, I thought to myself, how old is that? I still had it on my PC. And I said, how old is that article? And I looked down it and I read it. And, you know, the first thing that happened to me was I was like, oh, you know, well, that's not not too bad. You know, I, I quite, I'm quite happy with uh, what I wrote for that time, with that level of knowledge, for that level of experience, whatever it was. Um, and then you just couldn't help. I just saw the Twitter comment and, someone's, and someone had written something like, what the fuck does this guy know? What a fucking idiot. You know, it was just one of those things where he's just like, oh, God, just ignore it. And like, oh, no. And so the only social media of any description I suppose I'm on is, is LinkedIn. Because um, I like uh, I like following industry news in particular for the Bengals. And LinkedIn is pretty good for, for following industry trade publications, that kind of stuff. And so um, And so I posted it and I was like, you know, it's like, fucking you know everyone's got great fucking hindsight you know obviously 2020 hindsight um and like i wrote this and i thought to myself i want to kind of get out there not that anyone who ever followed me on twitter probably links to me on linkedin i kind of want to get out there no this is not you know this guy's this i sort of had in my head the back of my head this guy's comment saying you know this guy thinks he's you know says this about the pinnacle model or whatever it was and um and i was like fuck i don't know i'm gonna have to get my and so I put it out there and like within two comments on LinkedIn, someone had said, yeah, not bad, but fucking clearly it's about this. I'm like, fuck, you know, <laughs> so like, you know, now I've been like really hooked in by that. And so I thought, oh, I'm going to just put a post on me. And I thought, why not? As, a, as an exercise, it'll be interesting. I think it was like 10 year old articles. And I said, why not? As an exercise, let's go through what the 2010 me or whatever thought and compare it to what the 2020 person thinks, knows, whatever. And, um, it was quite it was quite an interesting process. I think the one thing that people picked out was that um, we were talking about like sort of uh, so I was writing about this sort of high turnover, low margin exercise. And I'd, I'd done the cardinal sin of mentioning mentioning marathon. Now, I mean, for the listeners who don't know, marathon, like for many years, probably to a degree now even is considered like, you know, a, a joke, you know, people call it a joke bookmaker. Um, close your account super fast all the rest of it. Now, um, it all depends on your definition of joke. I mean, largest online in Russia probably sees more turnover than fucking God. But, you know, like, 
you know, they're they're definitely uh, quick to close accounts if you win. So, you know, definitely in the dressmaker category in that regard. Um, and what people don't recognize is that now they bet to pretty keen margins. People have got no idea just how keen those margins were for a time. I mean, they were like betting stuff to 101, 102% across a huge wide range of things. And at that time when I wrote that article, um, I was doing loads of research with odds portal data at the time. And you could see that like Marathon was basically updating their prices like fucking millions of times a match. This is pre-match before the match started. And I was like, shit, you know, there's no way a human is clicking all these price updates. And the only other person you knew that was pretty much going to move their price the moment you placed a bet at the time was, was Pinnacle. And still, they're one of the few people who does auto-move bets. And so I thought to myself, do you know what? How does one survive betting to 102, you know, without either knowing what you're doing, whatever? And I didn't know so much. You know, I spoke. The funny thing is they had an office in Brighton in the UK and the main office in, I want to say it's St. Petersburg. And I'd spoke to some people in, you know, the Brighton office, and it's like, yeah, no, it's like a black box. We don't know what goes on in Russia, whatever. Now, the reality is, is that I soon would learn, well, I'd say I would learn later on in life that the uh, Russian market is one that's really keen on price. Most people don't bet basis on, you know, they're price insensitive. But the Russian market has got a really big thing on, like, discounting margins. They quite often will do, it's a KHL, biggest ice hockey league there. You know, they'll quite often do like uh, no juice, you know, no vig, no no overround games and things like that. And that, um, you know, margins are a really big thing in that market. They're all got, all markets seem to have these little idiosyncrasies. So then I was like, oh, right. So, you know, St. Petersburg HQ for Marathon, you know, that all makes sense why they're betting that. But I still thought to myself, do you know what? The, you know, they're moving the price around pretty rapidly, quite a lot. And what was interesting was the the signature of, particularly tennis prices at the time for Pinnacle, was that they were consistently, you know, if ever you were going to be uh, much lower margin than the rest, you're always going to be best price something with Pinnacle. You know, certainly at the time they were betting ATP really aggressively. And they were often the biggest price, the, the underdog. So, you know, the the 5.5 with one bookmaker would be 6.5 at Pinnacle. Um, and Marathon were even more extreme. So I was like, right, so they're kind of, they're almost pinned to the Pinnacle favorite price, but they're offering like, seven to that 6.5 and i you know people at the time were like saying the great thing is is that people were saying like in like yeah i took like 23.0 on something that was like 16.0 and i thought to myself well you know what in implied probability terms that's not actually that fucking massive and then i started to think to myself oh shit you know maybe maybe marathon actually fucking onto something or at least maybe the tennis is and then, you know, I used to speak to the guys who did the on-court software, which is a software that a lot of people used to use for, for tennis, a company called CanSoft, on-court. Loads of, um, loads of uh, uh, statistics, and it's, it's actually quite a cool piece of software. Um, and so I thought to myself, uh, oh, that's interesting. And they used to have historical odds. This is way before you could get really good historical odds detail. They had historical odds and in-play odds for every pinnacle and marathon i thought to myself why the fuck have they got marathon and i thought to myself oh russian russian and i started to you know slowly but surely you put two and two together and, and maybe make five like i say i didn't know that much about the russian market but then you thought to yourself well maybe marathon are terrible at some things but for tennis they're moving the price a shitload they're betting to very low margins they're either losing money hand over fist but they've been around already for a few years at this point um in the uk market it was or um or they might actually be onto something. 
So I pretty much alluded to um, in this article that, you know, these are people who might be trying to do very much just a lay and move auto dynamic pricing, you know, auto move pricing. And yeah, and this is one of the things that was particularly picked out. Like, ah, oh, this guy, this guy thinks marathons. It's like, oh, fuck's sake. So at which point, you know, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm then there, you know, 3,000 words later, like, you know, going through every single part of this thing. Like, what was my thinking then? And what was my thinking now? And I sincerely hope that people think like, oh, bookmaking hasn't changed. And it's like, it's it so has, but you're just not necessarily in the shop window. You don't see it from necessarily the views that someone like I would do. And what's interesting is you see all these things evolve and often it takes time. So, you know, the Asian market for soccer is, you know, evolving. They were coming away from the agent era. We're going into the more the direct online deposit. You know, people can deposit by WeChat and shit, you know, like it's these things sort of quite glacial. And that's the beauty of the Corona. Well, sorry, I don't want to sound horrible. There's no beauty in the coronavirus. But the fascinating thing about the bookmaking industry is in the space of six weeks, people have launched products that would have taken two years to launch. You know, there's a huge evolving. You're actually seeing like margins that were higher than, you know, the expectations. Let's say you bet something to 108. You know, you were getting margins of 110. You're like, fucking hell, I wonder if that's sustainable. And then suddenly you're now getting margins back down to sort of close to what you would expect. And it's like, my God, you're literally seeing... 10 years of sports betting evolution happened in a tiny fraction of time. But this article did allow me to look back and see what I have picked up, you know, and it made me think to myself, oh, some things have changed over the last 10 years and, and things do evolve, even if they are boring fucking KYC things or other things that people don't really care about. You know, people are like, you know, God, so they invented like live streaming on the website for betting and they invented like mobile betting and then there's been no innovation or like cash out. And then everyone's like, there's been no innovation ever since. So it's like, well, the innovation doesn't need, it's like no one's fucking thought to redefine chocolate cake. It's fucking great. It's a brilliant product. You don't really need to reinvent it. But, you know, you get to this point where, you know, you must understand, and people refuse to understand this a lot of the time, but for betting fundamentally, like what worst mistake I find online for me, people may not even believe me when I say this, but it's not, betting is not about winning. And people don't bet. People may say they bet because they want to win or they want to become a winner or they want to win long term. But the deep actual neurological reason people enjoy betting is risk. We enjoy taking risk and the enjoyment is proportional to the size of the risk. So it's like it's like if you've ever stepped out into the road and the car's just literally almost taken your nose off and that sort of almost rush of adrenaline that you survived. In the same way, the bigger you bet... And then, you know, it's like like when you chase, you have a whole day, you lost, lost, and you're like, fuck, this is the last race of the day, I'm down a grand. If you bet and you get back to zero, the fucking elation on that is just abnormal. It's like incredible. And it's the act of putting money at risk is the turn on, is the endorphin hit. Winning is not as powerful, not as powerful neurologically as the benefit we get when we put something at risk, when we take risk. So when you've got something that is as pure and simple in betting as that, literally, I have paid money, I get my hit, that's it. It's like, it's just literally, I don't need to receive a product. The money leaving my hand is the product. I've already had the nerves, the jangle. You know, when people talk about sweating the game, I've never understood enjoying sweating a game. I think it's, you know, 
just fucking horrible watching bets. I try never to watch any of my bets in the history of my life. But, you know, that people sort of talk about this, you know, thrill of, you know, bets. And and when people say, like, oh, I still think that sounds, I think still think the point is winning. It's like, again, you've got to experience different territories. Most fascinating thing ever is the Turkish market. Turkish, massive gamblers. Not that it's fucking legal for the most part. But, you know, it's like massive gambling. You know, interestingly, certain parts of the Middle East, backgammon, backgammon, phenomenal, phenomenal gambling game. It's basically a vehicle. It's like the horse racing of games, really, in many ways. It's like a vehicle for gambling. Turks, huge backgammon fans. You know, massive, massive punters. And they are at their happiest when they've completely done their fucking bollocks. Absolutely love mouthing off to all their mates, you know, and I'm going to, I'm making a mass cultural stereotype. I do realize this and I apologize to any Turks listening who think this is not the way Turkish culture is. But from my observations, they're absolutely proud. They've dropped a massive amount of money. And it's almost like a point of pride to tell other people, I'm so fucking rich, I can afford to have lost this much money. It's like, you you know, have you ever lost five grand in a day? You fucking haven't because you're fucking useless. You know, I'm, you know, and so when you get people who can get so much and it's in microcosm in the UK, in the pub, what makes the better story? Like, yeah, so, um, so I had a fiver on this uh, 10 team accumulator and, uh, and it won. Well, fucking cheers. Aren't you lucky, prick? Um, <laughs> versus I had five pounds on this 10 team accumulator, right? Nine are in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, tenth, yeah. So two nil up, three two, three goals in injury time. Fuck. Oh, you know it's just the best thing. So you know when when you've got a product where win or lose, it's fantastic. Yeah. Who fucking needs innovation? Well, no. I've never won the lottery, but I'm guessing if you bet, if you bought a one dollar ticket and you won a million, that feeling would be fine. I'm sure. <laughs> but if you are at the racetrack and it's the last race of the day anywhere in the country somehow and the casinos are closed and there's no other option and you're down to your last 50 and you started with 5,000 or 500, doesn't matter, and you've turned that 50 into 10,000, there couldn't be a better feeling. And I think most people would understand the gravity of that versus the $1 lottery ticket where you where you win the lottery and you might win a million, but I would say that 10,000 on the last race of the day is, is more elation and endorphins. They, they even have, I mean, rails bookmakers, um, you know, it's even got a, its own term. It's just, it's like, you know, how much are you having on this bet? Getting out stakes. So basically, what have I lost? What horse am I betting? <laughs> Divide what I've lost by, by the odds of the horse I'm betting. That's my stake. Yeah. You know, it's like, the, you know, yeah. Fascinating. Know. Fascinating. Well, as always, it's a pleasure to chat. I know it's uh, never enough time and hopefully round three of this will be as as interesting for me and i'm sure many who are listening good luck with uh the bundesliga coming up and then everything else you got going on uh and hopefully again we can do this sometime soon pleasure jake